Hey everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. Is QT dead? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today is Tony Greer, editor of the Morning Navigator newsletter, and Michael Howell, CEO of Cross Border Capital. Hello to both of you. Hello. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, it's It was a crazy weekend. We got off to start Monday. There were a lot of nerves, but uh, things seem to be settling down a little bit. But I'd love to hear what both of you are thinking about the market. Tony, let's start with you um, and look at some of some of the sort of near term, what we saw today. And it was an interesting day, wasn't it? We had regional bank stocks recouping some losses, the major U.S. indices uh, up, although I have to look at where they settle because it has been a little bit uh, whipping around a little bit. Bond yields stabilizing. What's your sense of the market action we saw today? Um Well, the bond market volatility is still expanding and we're still trying to figure out some of these historic moves on the tape. And I think that they're the most important moves. So I think we should, you know, focus a little bit on them. You know, we just saw the curve uh, snap back from two's tens. I'm talking about from minus 110 basis points on March 8th to minus 40 basis points yesterday. Um, We had Fed funds trade from minus five, uh, excuse me, from 5% 5% on Friday to 4% on Monday. Um, so these moves are absolutely massively historic. We saw a massive potential reversal in two-year yields, right? We had the Powell testimony that ticked two-year yields up to a new high for the move of 506. And then we had the Silicon Valley Bank blow up, ticked them all the way back down to a low of, I guess, you know, below 4%. So we're trying to figure out what the bond market thinks of the world as it rapidly just changed from seeing a lot of inflation and a lot of rate hikes to a lot of deflation and no rate hikes and an economic slowdown. Um, so, you know, we're obviously dealing with an episode where the VIX trades into the 30s and the S&P um, backs off. What's been most interesting to me regarding the stock market and today's leadership is is an example of it. You know, you look at the the leadership today in this little bounce that we're seeing, um, and it's brokers and it's semiconductors, internet stocks, cues, software, um, and social media. It's all technology. So mm. technology has gotten back in the lead now that we've had this massive reduction in rate expectations and inflation expectations. Right? We went from a couple of weeks ago where um, you know, we had other sectors that were vying for leadership in the S&P with, you know, metals and mining was up there. Um, airlines were up there and all of a sudden they've all been wiped out and tech has risen to the top here. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of thinking that that might be what leads us out of this um, Silicon Valley blow up dip, if you will. And mm-hmm. I think that we may have seen the worst of it. You know, it looks like a typical waterfall scenario that has sort of come and gone already, Maggie, if that's fair, you know, it has all the earmarks, the VIX trades, VIX trades to the thirties um, and melts back. We saw um, four out of five consecutive negative days in the S and P we just got our fourth day of massive tick extremes on the downside, which means there's indiscriminate selling going on. 
Um, and the S&P fell 250 points. And that looks like that was the reaction. So I'm kind of playing it, you know, more from the long side now and still thinking that in the short term, and now I'm talking about through this week into next week, that I think we've seen the worst. So, um, you know, I'm going to try to keep a handle on the bond market and, you know, see what that brings if the rates really have turned, which it looks like it looks like the curve has turned and can start steepening. It looks like two year yields have turned and can start backing off. I just don't know if that matches with reality. Because as we saw today with inflation, even though it was bang in line, CPI is still 6%. Yeah. And we know that they're still, you know, likely to see inflation higher for longer. So there's a battle royale going on in the bond market. And, um, you know, trading is hectic, but, you know, really good for short term guys like me. And quite honestly, yeah. I'm dying to hear what Michael Belkin has to say. <laughs> yeah, it's a uh, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting scenario. Tony, are you surprised when you see technology stocks? It, was, it seems like the market, that leadership is saying, okay, the Fed's backing off. But if the Fed's backing off, it's it's not because of good reasons. I mean, it's because we're in a situation where we're potentially going to see a recession. We had Moody's coming out, uh, down, uh, chain, putting their outlook down for the entire U.S. banking sector, saying they see rapidly deteriorating operating environment. I mean, these don't sound like sort of good scenarios. No, but the, uh, the stock market is going to have some sort of celebration in that rate move, right? Fed funds going from 5% to 4%, two-year yields from 5% to 4%. You know, there's a lot of changes that take place in the portfolio when that happens. And if you look at how far, you know, technology is off the highs and where it's just consolidated and sort of turned upward, you know, all of these sectors were trying to break out before the Powell testimony and sort of got set back by the, you know, volatility that we're seeing. And it's pulled them deeply back into their breakout zone. So if you look at what's cheap now, you know, what what's, you know, the, the cheapest sectors of the stock market are definitely going to be the names like social media and internet stocks that were down 40% last year. And they're just starting to bottom, technically speaking, so if that's where the money wants to flow, then that's where the money wants to flow. And, you know, I'm going to try to just catch on board there and not be judgmental um, with the VIX at 25. And I'm just going to try to, you know, slap my singles here and keep moving. Yeah, that, that, that you know, that makes sense. You got to follow what's going on. The, the market action is telling you. Um, since you're talking about following those flows, stay with us, Tony. I, I want to bring Michael into the conversation. Michael, because that's what you do. That's what you do, right? That's that's you you follow global liquidity. Uh, yep. So so talk to me about what you're seeing. What are the flows telling you right now in the wake of you know what we've seen in the banking crisis? And do you think that it's isolated and for the most part over? I think the answer is for your last two questions, uh, yes and yes. Uh, it probably is for the moment. Uh, I think this is uh, a situation to draw a, a bad analogy, maybe. Uh, is the patient sort of uh, about to suffer a heart attack? No, uh, there's chest pains. And I think the Federal Reserve is the paramedic that's coming in and supporting the system. Now, we look at global liquidity. We cover that, uh, you know, it's a highly quantitative exercise. We're covering about 90 uh, financial systems worldwide to get uh, a fix on global liquidity. Uh, we made the point uh, late last year that we think the bottom in global liquidity is in. It was in last October. 
Uh, it's still very low. There's no question about that. Uh, SVB, Silicon Valley Bank, is a casualty of very low liquidity. You always get bank problems around the, the trough point. Uh, that almost signals that you're, you're seeing a turn. Uh, the federal authorities will basically be willing to keep an eye on this because there is a lot of fragility in, you know, in areas of U.S. banking because, as we know, there's a, there's a long tail. It's not just the big money center banks are important. There's a lot of smaller, mid-sized banks that may well have uh, funding problems, but the Fed is on top of it. I think one's assured by that. I think the key point is not necessarily uh, SVB. The key point is uh, what happened last September uh, in the British gilt market. That was the real wake-up call to everybody. Um, as Tony says, and I'm with him 100%, it's all about the fixed income markets. You've got to understand the fixed income markets more and more. Uh, that's not just looking at rates. That's looking at uh, term premium. That's a wonkish concept. But look, the fact is that in the last two days, term premium on US 10-year treasuries have basically popped up 50 basis points. That is a whopping move. And that's basically saying it's reflecting the fact that investors are starting to take more risk. They want to take more risk in the markets. Uh, and that's, if you like, an upbeat signal. The other thing we've got to look for is for the move index, bond volatility to come down. Bond volatility is critical in creating liquidity or as a backstop for liquidity because collateral, we're in a, uh, a funding system where collateral is all important. And so bond volatility is really one thing to watch. The federal authorities will want to see bond volatility down. In fact, monetary authorities everywhere will want to see things down. But to go back to the September of uh, 22 point, uh, why was that so significant? Because that was the time after the British guilt crisis that the Federal Reserve basically flatlined U.S. bank reserves. They have not strayed away from uh, three trillion U.S. dollars ever since. For 25 weeks, they've been treading that threshold. And that's an important threshold. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I think we all know by now, things are pretty fucked out there for most of us. You see, whether it's currency debasement, rising real estate prices or wages that never go up, it's really hard. And one of the most popular things we ever did was that series, How to Unfuck Your Future. So we're going to do it again, March 11th, March 22nd. We'll discuss the problems at hand, no holes barred, and then we'll give you all the tips you need unfuck your future it just costs a dollar to join real vision to get access to all of this content go to realvision.com forward slash the future i'll see you there let's unfuck your future together so michael i mean if bond volatility getting that down is important how are they going to do that we just had tony say we've seen extraordinary moves in bonds I think it's a, it, it's a difficult question, yeah, but it, but I think we're at the peak. I mean, I would be surprised, you know, what is the move? I don't know how it closed today, but yesterday it was 173 spot five. So this is a, this is a big number. Uh, the move index is much more important than the VIX index these days, because as I say, it's so important for collateral and collateral is really what drives the system because liquidity comes from, comes from funding and collateral. So they've got to get it down. And I think the, you know, what you're seeing is if you like a, uh, maybe it's a philosophical move, but it's a move away from being lender of the last resort, which is what the federal authorities always used to be. That kind of ended in the GFC in 2008. 
and they basically became uh, buyers of the last resort in the repo markets. So they were already entering into the, into the money markets and they were supporting them. I think what you've now seen is another iteration where they're basically becoming dedicated collateral managers. And what they're going to want to see is bond vol down and trying to control the sovereign debt markets. I mean, we can, you know, we can dance on the head of a pin and say, look, hey, uh, the federal authorities want to control inflation. They want to keep employment uh, up or whatever it may be. At the end of the day, every central bank that's in business is controlling their sovereign bond market. That's what, if push comes to shove, that's what they do. Look at what the BOJ has been doing. Look at the Bank of England. It switched with alacrity from QT to QE overnight. And this is what the Fed's done. I mean, these actions the Fed's doing is plain and simple QE. So, so that that answers our question for you know, are they going to formalize that and kill Q uh, quantitative tightening QT somehow in this next meeting? So, how do they how do they approach this now, given the fact that they're constantly being pulled between this fight for inflation and fight for financial stability? It sounds like financial stability is the issue now. Do they do they do, do they announce they're not doing any more QT and still try to raise rates? How do you see it playing out? Yeah, I think it's a it's an interesting question, Maggie. I think as they say in Ireland, if you want to travel to Dublin, don't start from here. And uh, it, it's pretty much that problem. Now, one of the things that they've done anyway is they'd redefined, they changed the goalposts and shifted the goalposts on QT. Now, most people would have understood QT to mean liquidity withdrawal. But what the federal authorities were telling us is it doesn't mean liquidity withdrawal. What it means is getting treasuries off the balance sheet. Okay. But that's not really what QT means. Most people don't understand it's been a withdrawal of liquidity, but they've actually changed that definition. So it's quite possible they could still allow treasurers to roll off the balance sheet. So tick the box that they're really doing Q QT as they define it. But actually the liquidity support that's going in is actually increasing. So it's not impossible to see uh, them claiming to do a QT, but bank reserves, which is a measure of money in the money markets could be going up. And that's really what, what liquidity is all about. That's what you've got to start focusing on. So they could actually have their cake and eat it here. They could claim to do one thing, but actually do a, something completely different and support liquidity. And liquidity is all important. Let's forget these cosmetic definitions of uh, QT. It's all about uh, putting liquidity in. And that's what QE is, plain and si simple. And that's what they're doing. So I mean, you, you QE, QE and QT at the same time. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the bizarre thing, that's how they defined it. But, you know, you look at this, um, you know, uh, the uh, uh, B BTFP program. I mean, this could be this could be big. This is, you know, the, the bank funding, uh, the term funding program that they put in. This could be significant. It could be, you know, hundreds of billions, possibly. I'm, I'm smiling because Michael had to make the point in, in your note that it is BTFP is not what people thought it was, which is by the effing dip, pivot rather, <laughs> but it's actually the bank lending. Um, yep. It's funny that no one at the Fed uh, realized, I guess, that that acronym stood for something very different. Um, Tony. It'd be, you know, the answer to your question, right? The, the BTFP might be, you know, the facility that allows bond volatility to back off, right? If we if we clear all these funding issues and everybody's plugged up overnight on an overnight basis, you know, today we got the bond volatility index to settle just under 170. Um, it's come off from the peak. Looks like it needs to trade into a range of like 120, 140 before the bond market's probably comfortable again. But it's usually those facilities, Maggie, that 
you know, make make all the bears go away, you know, at yeah. some level, you know, the, all the bears that are attacking the credibility of all these institutions and the Russell, uh, you know, the regional banks and the Russells have been halted and this and that. Those are all the things that hurt credibility. And the Fed comes back and says, OK, we're going to shore it all up. We've got another TARP program with a different moniker on it. Yeah, that's the end of it. Right. That's the end of the liquidity problem in terms of SVB, which would explain. And, and this was my question to you, Tony. And I, Michael, I'd like to hear you on this too. You know, there, the immediate response was the Fed's credibility has been questioned anyway because of them being so late to fight inflation. You know, th they seem to have gotten it back with their aggressive action. But then everyone was asking, where were you on bank supervision? Why didn't you see what was happening to bank, bank balance sheets as a result of your aggressive action? There seemed to be a lot of those questions over the weekend. Did the fact that they moved quickly and got this lending facility back up, it, do people feel like, yes? They trust that the authorities have it under control, Tony. Is that what we're seeing? Yeah, there's a level of that. Maggie. There's definitely a level of, you know, the, the Fed has come to the rescue, certainly at the point of sale where, you know, the money would naturally be leaking out of. So that that's where they've shored up the problem. Um, you know, if you look at how the bailout take, took place, it looks like, you know, it was a very politically motivated thing. It could have been done in the private markets. Um, and they chose not to. So that's even more of a reason why they're probably going to try to bottle this thing up as quickly as possible. And as long as that, you know, as long as we don't continue to see stress on, you know, the bond volatility index on the VIX and things like that, it may take a couple of days. And, and obviously there's still there's still a lot of portfolio changes that need to be made because of this change in the bond market. But still, it doesn't lead me to believe that we are looking for another waterfall leg from here. Interesting, Michael. That there have uh, we did a I did an AMA with Mike Green today. Uh, I talked to Daniel yesterday, uh, Lakaye on the Daily Briefing, and there is concern that this is the 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 conditions that created the problem with Silicon Valley Bank and the regional banks is this aggressive move by the Fed, whether you want to call it what Daniel called it, which is the popping of the biggest bomb bubble that's ever existed you know, in the history of the world, or Mike, who kind of described it as, now we've got to pay attention to the level of rates. That was just the models that people looked at just weren't built on that. Is there some sort of, um, they've, they've managed the financial stability, but are we in a new regime now, do you think? Yes, I mean we are without, without any question, but I think we've been in a new regime, you know, pretty much since the GFC, or maybe even a tad before that. And the, you know, the real issue is, uh, you know, dare I say it, the five-letter word China. I mean, China's the big issue, which has uh, unsettled the entire financial system, and that is because when China joined the joined the world economy back in 2001, came into the WTO, uh, China imparted a huge deflationary shock to the world economy. Now, what happened is that central bankers mistook that for a monetary deflation, which the, spooked them in the 1930s. So they said, we don't want, this is dangerous stuff. So what we've got to do here is we've got to slash interest rates, put interest rates down at zero because we've got this monetary deflation. What we actually have was a cost deflation. Cost deflations are not that bad. You can live through those, okay? They're actually pretty, at the end of the day, probably pretty good things. But monetary deflations are bad, but it wasn't a monetary deflation. So what the federal authorities did was slash interest rates, as we remember, but that incentivizes debt. So what you saw was this huge, huge piling up of debt over you know, 20 years. And what we're now doing is sitting on a debt mountain. Now, the whole problem here is 
is that the financial markets have turned into not new capital raising mechanisms, but refinancing mechanisms. And in, re in a refinancing world, polarity changes, okay? And that's what the monetary authorities have got to, got to remember. Now, the problem now is not interest rates so much. I mean, we'll come back to that later, but it's much more about funding and liquidity. And when you're using capital markets, which are your source of liquidity, as your weapon to axe inflation, you can't use them at the same time to refinance debt. And that's really the problem. And, you know, you've got at the moment very flaky uh, funding, a very flaky funding situation. And so the federal authorities have to keep coming in to kind of tape up the cracks. And that's what we're seeing again. And we're going to see it time and time again. So ultimately, what they've got to do is, I, in my view, they've got to ensure refinancing in the system, which means managing collateral, which means basically uh, a three-letter acronym, yield curve control, YCC. It's, it's going to come. And that's why I think Mike Green is saying it's all about controlling the level of interest rates. You can't have interest rates going up too high because that's going to damage your bond market. It's going to, it's going to prevent um, you know, uh, collateral refinancing. There's a huge amount of debt, which is upcoming, as we know, federal debt, the deficit's blowing out. And if you look at CBO numbers, latest projections from the Congressional Budget Office, you're seeing the debt mountain swelling, uh, but that's actually with a fairly benign uh, prediction of defense spending. Now, what we know is defense spending is going to be a lot bigger than uh, they're projecting right now, which is about 3% of GDP. It's going to be probably nearer five. So the, the funding burden is getting even bigger. Someone's got to take that up and stop interest rates going up. Answer, Federal Reserve. Mm. is back, big time. What does that mean for inflation? Well, it doesn't necessarily mean anything per se, providing that money stays in the financial system, right? But what we know is that it can spill out. Uh, if it stays in the financial system, you get asset price inflation. So the thing to look at are you know, areas like stocks should do well in an environment of more liquidity. Uh, commodities will do well. Uh, you know, Things like gold, crypto do very well in that environment. So those are the assets that do well. Fixed income markets, you know, apart from trading them, which you know, we, can, we can do that through this year, but ultimately, if they're capping yields, they're not going to be that great. Tony, we have we 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 certainly know commodities. Something you're always keeping an eye on. We still have moved oil down. Looks like people are looking at the demand side of the equation now. And we have a question uh, from uh, a viewer as to whether you're back in Bitcoin. You want to no. give us an <laughs> you want to give us an idea of how you're feeling about the commodity space here? Yeah, sure. They're you know they're they're. The physical commodity space is kind of bidless at the moment. You know, we've got natural gas still trading around 250, which is kind of the middle of this bottom range where it finally stopped hemorrhaging. Uh, we just printed the low print of the year in WTI, which was the second lowest print of the move. Um, we just settled on a 71 handle today, and the low of the move back in December was, uh, you know, just above 70. So a range break in WTI here would be, you know, could be technically catastrophic. Um, as you say, there's a lot of fear about the demand side now, fears about the, you know, pending recession, blah, 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 that we've been dealing with for weeks now slash months. Um, I, you know, I, I can't take my story, my mind off of the supply side of the story because it still continues, you know, to get tighter and tighter and tighter. Um, you know, you read the most recent stories are about, you know, how we're coming to the end of shale growth and things like that and and how it's going to just take a lot more investment in the fossil fuel space to continue to get oil out of the ground and keep spare capacity where it is 
So with that being the backdrop, I don't sense that there is a bottom falling out of crude oil, um, even if it does break the bottom of this range. I think it maybe drags lower. Um, there's still, you know, we've had a little bit of a flip where there's a little bit more gasoline demand and diesel demand right now. Um, while the crack spread remains firm and the refiners are usually the, the ones that are on the bid for crude oil here, probably stemming the slide because gasoline demand is still firm. So the refiners are in buying WTI, cracking it into more gasoline than diesel now. And that has been the, the sort of supportive factor in the market. While the sort of, um, you know, the, the deleterious factors are, you know, worrying about recession, demand destruction, inventory growth, has so, inventories have certainly changed um, direction in the last, I would say, what is it, three to five weeks now where they stopped depleting and started increasing again across the, w, across the crude oil, gasoline and diesel space. So that's why we're sitting back at the lows here in oil. We've seen already the bottom fallout of wheat. Wheat is now free, Maggie. I don't know if you saw the chart, <laughs> uh, but but grains are offered. Base metals are heavy on this side of the SVB blow up. And it's going to take a while before that gets turned around, like Michael said, until, um, you know, I would say that it matters until, you know, serious liquidity comes back. And it's going to matter, you know, not until we get some kind of a, a risk on move where we get assets going on the upside, you know, will we work off of this crude um, dip that we're on? So, you know, I guess that's a little bit redundant, but it looks like they're going to be under pressure for a little while. You know, I'm, a, yeah. I'm still a bull, but there's nothing I can do about the prices backing off. And if I look at some of the sectors, you know, in the equity markets, no matter how I slice it, it still looks like the tech sector is a better buy right now than my natural resources sectors which looks like they may back off from some of the highs of the moves. If you're talking about, you know, XLE, XOP, um, sector XME, which was just, you know, running away with itself, has now backed off about 15% in two weeks. So we've seen all the natural resources trade back off mm. into support. You know, it looks to me like the risk is in tech leads the market to the upside here, and maybe financials recover quickly out of this abyss. I'm not sure, but... That's how I'm looking at it right now, Maggie. And it's very much one day slash one hour at a time. Yeah. And that tech leadership, certainly not, not what a lot of people thought when we started the year. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Michael, this is an interesting question from John. And I think this is what gives people pause and makes them a little bit nervous about saying, you know, this has been contained. What's the impact of accelerating move of bank deposits to money market funds? You know, when I was talking to Mike at, uh, earlier today, he's like the whole incident basically just was like a foghorn to every American saying, oh, by the way, if you have any money in the bank, you could be making a hell of a lot more of it sitting in short term duration. Some people just weren't paying attention. You could get 5% if you were or whatever it was, 4% by going into a money market account. Do you do you think that that's an issue that the you know deposit rates are so much lower than money market accounts and that's a a vulnerability for the financial sector? Without question, I mean it's a it's a real risk, and I think Mike Green nailed that there. Um, I think the you know the point is that you know if there if there are problems in terms of loss of deposits, then you're going to have to have this uh, this this new Fed acronym, the, uh, the the bank term funding program, actually acting you know more more aggressively. And I think that you know they they the federal authorities have made a point. They're there to backstop the system, and they're doing it. And I think that you know relative to 2008, they've moved with alacrity. 
Um, I mean, this happened over a weekend and they basically, before the markets opened, they were there. So I think they understand the problem. Um, and I think that, you know, what you've got is a, is a situation where liquidity uh, is going to start moving up. Now, I'd be less convinced that they want to cut rates quickly. That's for sure. But in my view, the big, the big issue is liquidity. So I think the liquidity conditions are going to turn around. Now, you know, the, when I was um, uh, you know, on my way for, the, for, this, uh, for this call, I was reading uh, the FOMC minutes um, from July of 84. Now, in May of 84, you may remember Continental Illinois failed and the federal authorities had been tightening. Uh, they were concerned about a rip-roaring economy. They were concerned about inflation taking off. And I'll read you the first couple of bits from what Paul Volcker said in the testimony, which you can go and look up on the Fed website. He says, I think we're coming close to running out of maneuvering room, okay? Uh, he said, I conclude from everything we know uh, that it's not time to take a strong initiative in the restraining direction. And basically within uh, a few days of that meeting, uh, the Fed cut rates. So, you know, that was a turning point. And he says, he goes on to say, and actually, by the way, the other thing you can pour over in these minutes is they're looking very, very closely at wage settlements. And the conclusion they got to is it was just not getting, it wasn't getting worse. In other words, wage settlements were beginning to reach a peak. And that gave them enough confidence that the economy wasn't the problem. The financial sector was, and the Fed came in to support it. And I think you've got the same now. Now, I think what you've also got to do is to start thinking internationally and say, well, okay, how does this pan out in Europe or in Japan or in China? Yeah, now, exactly. Let's let's go there. And by the way, it's amazing because it, people love to say history doesn't repeat itself. It rhymes. <laughs> this time it sounds based on what you said that it's repeating itself. So, you know, talk <laughs> to us about how this uh, how this moves through the globe and, and what is the liquidity picture telling you in different regions? Walk us through that a little bit. Okay, well, the, the most stubborn uh, central bank has been the European Central Bank. Uh, they're slated, and I say slated, to reduce the size of their balance sheet by about 15 to 20% this year uh, because of these support programs that were put in place during COVID are rolling off and they're, they're, they're forcing them to roll off. So a 15 to 20% fall in the balance sheet in this context looks madness. So let's say that's not going to happen. Uh, they're going to have to come back in and find other programs to support the banks. And we know that you know, if the US has got problems uh, in, in banks, the European situation is parlous <laughs> in that regard. It's a, it's a different dimension. So basically, uh, they're going to have to change policy. Then you look at Japan. I think Japan anyway is moving, is basically operating a loose monetary policy. The new incoming, or the incoming governor, Ueda, uh, is likely maybe to change the target for the JGB. But at the end of the day, look, the JGB actually rallied on this. So maybe they don't have to, and they're basically pushing liquidity into the system. The Chinese central bank, the People's Bank of China, has just come off one of the most aggressive liquidity injections in their history. Uh, in two months, they injected 3 trillion yuan into money markets as the Chinese economy was restarting, which represents about three and a half times what they put in, in the entire two-year prior two years. So they're really going for it. Now, admittedly, February and March have been negative. They've taken money out, but I wouldn't expect that to last. They're going to be putting money back again, in my view. So I think you've got a lot of these central banks started moving now towards the easing side. And as we say, you know, the, 
the, the low was in last October for global liquidity, but it's pushing up. Doesn't mean to say bad things won't happen at the trough, they will. Better to have more liquidity than less, but I think the direction is moving upwards. So I go with what Tony's saying is that this market probably is in a trading range and you've got to trade it. And I think the fixed income markets, my view, are in a trading range too uh, until they break out. But I think the breakout <laughs> will be on the upside uh, maybe in six, nine months time. It's so interesting to hear you say that because it feels so fraught now. I think when they we saw that failure uh, and the feds have to come in. It just seemed it just seemed like it was such a dangerous period. But it seems like what you're saying from what you're seeing on the liquidity flows that the worst is the worst is in, and that it's going to be a much more productive period for risk assets in six months. Am I hearing you right on that? Yeah, I think. I mean, never say never, of course. But you know, we could be spooked by something in the next two or three days. Who knows? But at the end of the day, I think we've. You've demonstrated you've got Fed support. The Fed's in there. And as I say, this program they've announced, uh, the, the, the term funding program for banks, I mean, that could be, you know, very, it's very generous. It could be significant in size. I mean, you know, on the back of the envelope, it could be 100, 200 billion. I mean, it could be a, a lot of money going in uh, to support these banks, uh, maybe at least that number. So you've got, uh, you've got impetus there. And I think if you go back to the 1984 uh, continental Illinois failure, I mean, that did signal a turn in, in Federal Reserve uh, policy. And you basically saw that was the, the run-up. Markets basically began to pick up quite significantly, as we know, through 85, 86, and into 87. So we're, if we're in a trading range for some markets, are we in a, a range for Fed rates? So just because they are doing these facilities and they may not be hiking anymore. Can they leave rates where they are? Or are they just too high for this sort of situation we're in? Well, I think the, I mean, if you go back to the transcript from, from 84, what Volcker said then is that it was inappropriate to tighten at that time in the wake of continental Illinois. But he said, we're not going to rule out a, a later tightening if, if the need arises. Actually, it didn't arise uh, until actually uh, sometime lot, quite a lot later. So in other words, rates then were, were cut for some for many months in the US. They, the policy was eased. I think in the current situation, my view would be that uh, the Federal Reserve probably stays pat where we are now. Uh, I mean, it's possible, conceivable, they can put a small rate increase in. But I think they're more likely to stay where they are, sit on their hands for a while, watch what happens, uh, not rule out another rate increase. Uh, but I think the, at the end of the day, you know, I keep coming back to this sort of philosophy which says, that what central bankers have got to learn is what is called the, bad, the budget rule. Budget was a, 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 a sort of the doyen of central bankers. He was a, a British journalist uh, in the uh, financial journalist in the 19th century, wrote all about financial crises, and Britain had its fair share. Jim Grant in the US has written a fantastic biography of uh, Walter Badgett. But Badgett's rule is uh, you lend freely, i.e. lots of liquidity, at a high rate of interest, against good collateral. And the problem is most of our bankers, our central bankers have been doing the absolute reverse for the last 20 years. They've got to start learning this. You need lots of liquidity, but you have rates high. Yeah, which is, which is going to be a completely different place to be. Are, yeah. are any signs, we're almost, we're, we're, we're already out of time, but I got to stretch it because I you two amazing guys and we're in these you know, precarious times that people are really worried about. Any signs of collateral scarcity that have created problems before, Michael? Well, there's, we are in a world where collateral is short. That's that's for sure. That's that's the ultimate problem. I'd say the 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 positive 
in the next two or three years is the collapse once the debt ceiling issue is is resolved and bear in mind that's another you know that's another problem uh, which is going to make this whole thing complicated but looking through the other side of the debt ceiling issue uh, there'll be a lot of is coupon issuance coming which is basically great collateral uh, and you know you've got two really two areas of good collateral in the world uh, US treasuries and German bonds uh, and we basically need more of those uh, and that will help resolve the problem. But there is a shortage. That's what the fixed income markets have been telling us for the last two years. Mm. Uh, and then last question to both of you, Tony, I'll ask you, I'll ask you first, um, just, you know, I'm absorbing everything Michael just said. Do we feel like with this now and the Fed very focused on financial stability, probably going to back off any aggressive rate hikes? What are we thinking about the economy? I mean, can we start to, do you think the market will start to move away from the idea that we're going to see a very severe deep recession if it looks like the Fed has a handle on this? I don't know that necessarily one is going to mean the other, Maggie, where if they recognize that the Fed is easing in reaction to Silicon Valley Bank, will that mean that we necessarily may not, you know, it may lower the odds of a recession it may you know, maybe soften the stance on it a little bit. But I kind of I think that that's, uh, you know, that that's been programmed in by higher interest rates. Right. I mean, that's right. what is trying to do to slow inflation down was really kneecap the economy. And now, you know, part of it's being done for them. So, mm. you know, I don't I don't know. Not, and then once again, I'm not an economist, so I don't. Yeah, really it's that it's that lag. It's hard to know when when everything. Michael, what's your thought on that? Are we still, you know, is this sort of recession already baked in or. Uh, do these current events maybe mean that they back off before they push it really into a deep hole? Well, I suppose I, you know, I, I, I start from the perspective. I think we've had a lot of the recession already. Mm -hmm. um, I think that that's, you know, that's my starting point. I've never really been of the view that there's a deep recession. I think the fixed income markets are telling us that anyway, I mean, looking through this crisis, that there was likely a turning point around mid-year anyway for the economy. It was likely to get better in the second half uh, and that, that's what I think the, the message from the fixed income markets was. I don't believe the yield curve. I think the yield curve is a highly distorted uh, indicator anyway, but it's particularly distorted right at the moment because term premium is so negative, which comes back to the collateral shortage issue. That's what's biasing it. So I, I don't think there's a deep recession. Uh, I think the economy is slowing, but the best heads up for the economy is to look at the performance of cyclicals versus defensives. That's always been a much, much better predictor than economists of what the economy does. Uh, that's you know that was the old Stan Druckermiller rule. Uh, look at the internals of the markets. The best economist, he, yeah, it's it's right again. So look at that. I think that's one thing. And I think the other thing, which is you know, again, I stress not a recommendation here, but you know, if you want to know what the liquidity situation is at any any moment, look at Bitcoin. Uh, Bitcoin goes up. There's a lot of liquidity in the system. If it goes down, you've got a shortage. Uh, it's not a recommendation for the crypto, but it's just a it's just a, you know an honest assessment that these things are liquidity barometers. Yeah, fantastic point. Michael, I got to say, we, Maggie, go I, I wanted to reach out and, and hug Michael right there when he said that he already saw the recession because I feel like we've been through this already, right? We saw two negative quarters of GDP. We watched the yield curve collapse. We saw all the, the effects of the recession. I feel like the market saw the recession and it was only because we created this argument while it was happening whether or not two negative quarters of GDP actually meant recession, that all of a sudden the economists got their books back out and said, okay, let's go looking for the recession again. 
I mean, the, the market saw the recession, whether or not there's one coming or not, or you know what I mean? So I think that that's what we're reacting to. And so it, I, it makes me feel better about my view, hearing Michael describe that sort of from a different angle. That was really comforting for me. Yeah, I think the labor market threw people on that argument too, though, right? A lot of people were thinking we couldn't have been in recession if we had such a tight labor market and people kind of scratching their heads about that as well. Totally fair. Uh, is the lab- are the labor, uh, should we not pay much attention to the labor, those labor figures you think, Michael, when we're looking at that? Yeah, but I think the I think the labor market's, uh, you know, distorted by a number of things. I mean, one is, you know, control, visa controls have had a big effect mm-hmm. in the U.S., You've got the other thing, which is COVID. I mean, COVID has basically decimated a lot of the workforce. People have taken early retirement. It's a very, very misleading indicator. Um, and I think, you know, I mean, you, you, I don't know if you went through this with Mike Green. I know he's got some strong views about how distorted the employment data is. Uh, but you know, you listen yeah, to him. We're, yeah, well, we'll, we'll have to, we'll have to dive back into that again. We're all, we're all sort of focused on making sense of of what is complicated for a lot of people with this banking situation. So we didn't get in as into the labor conversation. Um, and that AMA with Mike Green is on the platform, everyone, uh, for you to check out because we did cover a lot of good stuff. As we close, Michael, anything that you're worried about? Is there a risk out there that concerns you? Because it sounds like you know, that uh, liquidity is turning up, things are going to look good in, in six months, the recession's passed us, and that federal regulators sort of have a handle on what's going on. Is there anything that does concern you in this scenario? I think the, you know, one of one of the issues we've got is the uncertainty of the debt ceiling. That's, uh, that's not helpful. Um, and, you know, we don't know if there are skeletons in the closet uh, that, you know, this, this crisis, um, you know, brings out. But I think generally, I'm more positive negative right now um you know there's always something that's going to surprise you um but you know generally i mean the other thing i suppose to throw in is that the europeans are not always rational when it comes to reacting in these situations i mean after all they were the ones that tightened during the gfc uh initially at least so there may be something foolish coming out of there but at the end of the day as i say i'm more upbeat than not Fantastic. Uh, Michael and Tony, thank you so much for your time. It was so great to have the both of you on. I think um, it was a really sort of fresh perspective and one that we haven't heard. Um, so, so helpful for everyone. We appreciate the both of you. Thank both of you. That was helpful for me. Yep. <laughs> That's all we can do is all help each other, Thanks. right? We are, yep. and we're going longer with these. Uh, Michael, we got to get you back for an extended Friday. Everyone's asking on the chat. Um, but we are going a little bit longer because it's an important time to try to provide everybody with some information and some tools so that they can sort of get through this. I'm going to be back tomorrow, same time, everyone, with Jem Carson. That should be really interesting uh, in terms of market positioning. So please join us then. Thanks to both of you, everyone out there. Take care and good luck. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.